to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Colossians 2. I'm going to read verses 8 through 15, but our focus is on verses 9 through 15. But 9 through 15 is related to the text we looked at last time, Colossians 2.8. So I'll begin reading with Colossians 2, verse 8. Colossians 2, beginning with verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. Well, Paul in Colossians 2 gives a series of three warnings, and last time we looked at the first of those warnings, which is found in Colossians 2 verse 8, where He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Dick Lucas sums up this first warning as saying, don't let anybody kidnap you. Now, if we're going to be uh, avoiding being taken captive by what Paul calls empty and deceitful philosophy, well, then we need an antidote to that. And that's what he gives us in our passage today in verses 9 through 15. And the antidote that he gives to us uh, is really a realization of what union with Jesus Christ means. We have in these verses what Dick Lucas sums up as a valuable summary of what it means to be in Christ. Uh, We're going to look at uh, these wonderful blessings that are already yours. In fact, every spiritual blessing that you will ever know, including future grace, is all tied up to union with Jesus Christ. It's the greatest thing that could have happened to you if you are a Christian. Nothing greater is possible than union with Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at this great theme of what it means to be united to Christ, and by the way, you do reference it quite often if you write Uh, a letter or an email and you sign off your name in Christ and then you write your name well what does that mean to be in Christ we're going to be considering that today well as we do so I find it again very helpful to use the division of the material by Dick Lucas who gives us a helpful uh, way of remembering it by choosing three words that all start with the same letter 
And uh, those words are fullness, fellowship, and freedom. Paul speaks about fullness in Christ. That's verses 9 and 10. He speaks about fellowship with Christ. That's verses 11 and 12. And then he speaks about freedom through Christ. That's verses 13 through 15. So fullness in Christ, fellowship with Christ, and then freedom through Christ. That's our passage today. Let's begin with fullness in Christ, verses 9 and 10. Christ is the complete Savior because of who he is, verse 9. Given what Paul teaches in verse 9, this great Christ obviously does not need any supplement. Uh, He is enough. Look at verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Well, he speaks first here of the full deity of Christ and Again, as Paul does it, he uses one of the buzzwords of the heretical false teachers that have come to Colossae. They like to use this word fullness. They have come offering their services to the Colossian Christians for the full life or the higher life. They have the program to bring them to that fullness of life. But the false teachers then, as false teachers today, Uh, did not have what every believer in this room has, and that is union with Jesus Christ. And this Christ that you are united to is more than enough. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's not one of many divine emanations between God in heaven and man on earth, which would include the angels of God as the heretical false teachers in Colossae were teaching, Uh, Because the fullness of deity dwells in Christ, he needs no help. He's the complete Savior. Thus, good angels are not needed to serve as mediators to bring us to God, and evil angels uh, are not capable of separating you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, We don't need the program of the false teacher as it concerns uh, his fixation with angels. Now, Paul uses the most powerful word available in Greek when he speaks about the deity of Christ. Greek scholars tell me that it's an even more powerful word than is used of in uh, Romans 1.20, which is itself a powerful word. But in Romans 1.20, you remember, Paul teaches that uh, God reveals something of his divine essence and his attributes through the created order, what he has made. That's a powerful statement. God does make a true revelation of himself through creation. But the Greek scholars tell me that the word that he uses in Colossians 2 verse 9 is even more powerful than that. Uh, He could not have made it more clear, that is the Apostle Paul, that he is talking about the divine nature or essence. It's not possible to read this verse and suggest that Paul is merely saying that Jesus is godlike or that he is a conduit of divine power like Moses was, for example. No, no. This word is declaring that Jesus Christ has the essence of being God. He is by nature God. It could not be more clear than that. The word points us 
to one who possesses the divine nature or essence. The word says he is very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Uh, the word points us to the creator of all, the sustainer of all, the judge of all. As Phil Arthur says, leave this Christ behind and you leave God behind. Turn your back on this Christ and you have turned your back on God. It is that clear. It is that plain. Now Paul also speaks of the real humanity of Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of God has settled down and is at home in the body. The Son of God dwells continuously in the body to bring out the present tense continuous of the Greek. In other words, Paul is not just talking about the wonder of the incarnation, but the permanence of it. Now, the false teachers in Colossae did not think much of the body. They had embraced early Gnostic thought that taught that matter was evil, and thus they were of the opinion that God could never have become a man. But God is not of that opinion. God is not of the opinion that matter is evil because he made the material world, and when he made it, he said, Behold, it is very good. Now, sin, of course, is not good, and sin has come into the creation, and it has brought a curse, but that doesn't change the fact that God made the world, and what God made is good. The material world is not evil. That's not the problem. The body is not the problem, as the heretics in Colossus seem to think. And you'll discover that they had a problem with the body. If you go on in this chapter, you'll read about their asceticism, verse 18, and their body-punishing fasting, which was a kind of penance for them. You'll read about that in verse 23. But you know, when Martin Luther was in the monastery trying to earn his salvation and punishing his body in order to somehow merit eternal life, he did nothing by that to elevate his soul up to God. He did nothing that helped him unto holiness. All he did was give himself lifelong indigestion and major health problems. No, the material body is good, and someday the Christian will live in a glorified body upon a redeemed earth because that's why God became man, to bring that complete, full salvation ultimately to us. It's because the Son of God became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh in the incarnation that not only can he be our representative as the second Adam, but he is the creator. He is the founder of a new humanity. We have our life in him. It's because he's the God-man that his work on the cross that Paul is going to talk about shortly is of infinite value. We need nothing more than what is found in him. We don't need anything more than is available in him. This is what Paul goes on to say in his application of verses 9 uh, verse 9 in verse 10. Given that Christ is the complete Savior, it follows that he is completely adequate. Look at verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And you have been filled in him. Well, what does that mean? Well, it goes without saying that in Christ we do not become divine. We always have been and we always will be nothing 
but human. Now, the great tragedy of the Mormon and of Mormonism is that he or she who is a Mormon believes that someday they will be God. Now, the great tragedy of the New Ager is that he or she already believes that uh, they're God. Well, that's not what Paul is talking about here. Pastor Kent Hughes was once walking with his wife along the Pacific Ocean with a little pint container in his hand, and he began ruminating out loud with his wife that if he put down his container so that the Pacific Ocean should come into the container, he said uh, this, that the jar would be filled with the fullness of the Pacific Ocean, but he could never put the fullness of the ocean into his little jar. To be filled to the full of our finite capacity is not to become divine, it is to become truly human. In fact, that's the problem with man in sin. Man in sin has lost a great deal of his true humanity. He has lost the moral likeness to his maker. In fact, uh, I'm not going so far as to say that man in sin has become a beast rather than truly human, because that's how the Bible depicts fallen man in, in, in Daniel uh, 7 and Revelation 13. That's how, how uh, depraved we have become in Adam. We are described literally as a beast. Now, obviously, that's anti-Christian government, but anti-Christian government, you remember, is headed up by fallen humanity. That is a description of man in sin. But the Son of Man came into this world. God became flesh to restore the moral likeness of God to his people, to make us truly human. John Calvin explains what it doesn't and then what it does mean to be filled in Christ. He says, Ye are made full does not mean that the perfection of Christ is transfused into us, but that there are in him resources from which we may be filled, that nothing be wanting to us. The apostle is not denying that there is remaining sin that still needs to be mortified. He, he goes on to talk about that battle in Colossians 3 verse 5, where he says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. In other words, Paul is not teaching that we will enjoy all the benefits of being united to Christ in this life. Uh, we are not going to know the benefit that is certainly ours in Christ in this life, in this present evil age of walking about in a glorified body. We will not know in this life and in this age the experience of living a sinless life in a glorified body. That waits for the resurrection morn. That belongs to the life of the age to come. But whatever we need at present for a life of faith and godliness, God has provided in his Son. It's available in him. It's from his fullness that we all receive, says John, grace upon grace. You're not going to find it anywhere else. You're not going to find it in the Mosaic rituals of the Old Covenant. You're not going to find it in angels. You're not going to find it in deceptive philosophy. You're not going to find it anywhere but in Christ. As Charles Wesley put it, Thou, O Christ, art all I need. More than all in thee I find.
So Paul speaks about fullness in Christ. That's verses 9 and 10. Secondly, he speaks about fellowship with Christ. That's verses 11 and 12. In Christ, every Christian has the circumcision that matters. Look at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now we need to read between the lines as to why Paul should suddenly talk about circumcision. Obviously, in light of what he goes on to say in this chapter, it was something that was being emphasized by the false teachers that had come to Colossae. They were also emphasizing the holy days of the Old Covenant calendar and the dietary food laws. All the boundary markers of the Old Covenant Jew were being foisted upon these people, including uh, circumcision. But the reason that they were advocating circumcision in Colossae is for a different reason than it was being advocated by a different group of heretical teachers that had molested the churches of Galatia, to whom Paul writes Galatia, uh, Galatians. In that letter, Paul is dealing with Judaizers who were Pharisees, who were saying to Gentiles, you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised. Now, there is no evidence that the false teachers of Colossae believe that. They're not Pharisees. Yes, they have legalistic tendencies, but they're mystics, and they have imbibed uh, pagan thoughts and pagan philosophy as, as well as Jewish elements. And so their reasoning behind uh, circumcision is different than the Judaizers. They don't seem to be denying that the Colossians are saved people. What they seem to be saying is they're in the dark, that they need to be initiated. They need to be illumined, and they are here to offer their services. And part of the program of getting to that full life involves making a commitment to circumcision. This is how Phil Arthur um, put it uh, as he contemplates the role of circumcision in the minds of these heretics. He says, in Colossae, it seems that circumcision was being pressed on people as a means of putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Those who advocated it saw it as a ritual of consecration. The very fact that it was a painful procedure indicated that it was only for those who meant business. As baptism became the rite of initiation for all believers, circumcision was a second rite of initiation for the elite handful who were serious about making a decisive break with sin. So how does Paul respond to this uh, insistence upon circumcision if you want to know the higher life? Well, he says you don't need the physical rite of circumcision under the Old Covenant because you have the circumcision that matters. This is how he put it in Romans 2, 28 and 29. He said, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Every Christian has the circumcision that matters. We are not old covenant people of whom many did not know the Lord. We're not old covenant Israel. We're spiritual Israel under the new covenant 
They all know the Lord, says Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. That's the great benefit of being the new covenant people. Christ has secured for his people the regenerating work of the Spirit. What the right of circumcision was under the old covenant was a type pointing to circumcision of the heart and teaching that that is the demand of God. Now, you can have the type, but not have the antitype. The point is, is God's new covenant people have the antitype. They have what it points to, circumcision of the heart or spiritual regeneration. Under the new covenant, all of God's people know the Lord. We have the circumcision that matters. Now, Paul contrasts the circumcision that we have in Christ with the old covenant rite in Colossians 1.11. Let me read it again. In him also... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision of the heart is not done with human hands. It's not a work of minor surgery like physical circumcision. It's not outward. It doesn't just cut away a small piece of the body. It's far more radical than that. It's a purification act performed by God that deals with the whole of our sinful nature in Adam. It produces a spiritual purification. It's inward. It deals with our hearts. It changes our hearts. It's an act of God. Therefore, it's supernatural. It is described here as the circumcision of Christ, not only to contrast it with the circumcision of Moses under the Old Covenant, but to tell us that it is Christ himself who performs it by his word and by his spirit in the hearts of his people. It is this that brings us into the kingdom of God. It is this that makes us to be the people of God. We have the circumcision that matters. We don't need that which was only an outward right under the Old Covenant. Now, in Christ, every believer has the spiritual experience symbolized by baptism. Look at verse 12. And being buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, in this verse, Paul is reminding us of what our baptism symbolizes. It's not the outward rite of baptism that produces what Paul is talking about here. Notice that he is steering us away from thinking about baptism as some of the Old Covenant Jews thought about circumcision. It's not the outward rite that is the conveyor of grace. Notice that Paul talks about the place of faith in verse 12 and knowing these great blessings. Now, that word faith seems to be connected uh, to the power of God that Paul goes on to talk about, Martin Luther's position was, and I think he was correct on this, is that even that faith can only be explained by the power of God. In other words, it's the gift of God's grace, sovereign grace, that you would even have that faith. But faith is the operative word here. Um, baptism is not a conveyor of grace if, if you're simply baptized that's not a communicator of saving grace to people it is a ceremony that depicts saving grace already experienced uh, think about what baptism represents why do we baptize people we baptize people because God himself gave us the ordinance of baptism to depict what is your experience in Christ 
What is your experience in Christ? Paul teaches in Romans 6 that to be united to Christ by faith is to be united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is what is depicted by your baptism. What does it mean to be united with Christ in his death? Well, you know, as a Baptist preacher, we put you under the water, into the region of death, as it were, but we don't leave you there. But we we put you there because it symbolizes that you have died in Christ. In, In other words, you've already had your day of judgment. You had it at the cross 2,000 years ago. For the world, the day of judgment is in front of the world. For you, it's behind you. Your sins have been punished in full. It's behind you. And having died with Christ, it also means that you have died to sin as your master. Death has severed that relationship. You're no longer the slave to sin. You have died to that relationship with sin. We celebrate that in baptism. And we also celebrate the fact that you have union with Christ, not only in his death, but in his burial and then resurrection. We bring you out of the water because it symbolizes that you have come out of the tomb, as it were. You have new life. If any man is in Christ, behold, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And now you have a gracious master in Jesus Christ. That is symbolized by your baptism, your union with Christ. We're no longer what we once were in Adam. There's been both a funeral of the old and a birth of the new because of union with Christ. Now, that's radical stuff. That is really big-time stuff. Beware of the teacher who belittles the new birth because he never preaches on it, which shows you that it's not important to him. He belittles it. Beware of that teacher who doesn't preach the new birth. Beware of that preacher who doesn't ever preach about biblical conversion. He belittles it. That's why he doesn't preach on it. Beware of that preacher who belittles the experience of spiritual regeneration or union with Jesus Christ because... This is really big stuff, and if the preacher doesn't preach on it, he's belittling it, and he's making light of it, but the Bible doesn't. The Bible says that these experiences of grace that the Christian already knows are huge. These are big things. Very big. Every blessing that we have ever known is tied to union with Jesus Christ. What could be greater than that? Can anybody who has union with Christ ever be a second-class Christian? Can anybody who has union with Jesus Christ ever be one of God's poor stepchildren? Could there ever be in the Christian church a two-tier Christianity of uninitiated and initiated when all of God's people have union with Jesus Christ? Is there anything bigger, is there anything greater that could have ever happened to you, Christian, than that? It's magnificent, and it's true for every believer in this room. So Paul speaks, secondly, about fellowship with Christ, verses 11 and 12. That's huge. 
And then thirdly, he speaks about freedom through Christ. Look at verses 13 through 15. First, he talks about freedom from the guilt of sin or the forgiveness of sins in verses 13 and 14. He talks about the fact that faith union with Christ means the forgiveness of all sin. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now Paul is again highlighting how radical a thing it is to become a Christian. He recounts what the Christian once was, spiritually dead in sin and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now remember, he's writing to a largely Gentile church, and so when he mentions that word circumcision, there is also the hint that at one time they were not the people of God. They were separated from the covenant community. They were without God and without hope in the world. That was their before picture. It could hardly have appeared to be worse. And then he talks about the after picture, and it could not be more wonderfully different, as he says, but God made you alive. You came under the hearing of the gospel in the providence of God, and you not only heard the gospel, but the Spirit of God so powerfully worked in your heart that you believed the gospel, and that is due to God's sovereign grace. God made you alive. You didn't make yourself alive. He did that. Verse 13b, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. What was the first benefit when you were converted? All your trespasses were forgiven, not some of them, not most of them, but all of them. That means past sins, present sins, even future sins. Now, I know this, if you are a believer who is walking with the Lord, I know that you want very much to sin less and less and less until that day when you will be sinless. And you are oftentimes frustrated by how easily you sin, and you long for the day when you will sin no more, and that day obviously is not now, nor will it be tomorrow if you are living on the earth, nor will it be until you die and go to heaven. And until then, you will be conscious of your sin. But here's good news for you. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all of your sin. Not only the past, not only the present, but your future sins. Isn't that good news? Now, in verse 14, Paul fleshes out the details of this full and comprehensive pardon. Look at verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands... This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, the ESV is accurate when it talks about canceling the record of debt, but it really misses the drama. And uh, I like uh, the King James and the New King James much better. They give a more literal rendering of the Greek text. Let me give it to you out of the New King James in verse 14. They say this. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The language here of wiping out, if you've got the King James, it says blotting out. 
That's a more literal translation. It, they're also more literal when they talk about a handwritten statement of indebtedness. Our guilty conscience causes us to, to sign, as it were, the certificate of our indebtedness. The record stands not only against us, but it's contrary to us in that it demands our punishment. Uh, think of it this way. Think of the man in Adam. Think of the sinner, yet unforgiven, standing by the portals of death. Uh, the door is opened, and on the other side, he has no true hope of heaven, and he has reason to fear going through the portals of death because on the other side are the jaws of hell, and they're open wide to swallow him, to receive him, because he is a sinner. That is the position of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl in Adam. That is the situation. It is most perilous. But what does God do for sinners in the gospel? And what God, does God do for the sinner the moment, by God's grace, he or she believes in the gospel of Christ, pours themselves upon, uh, cast themselves upon the mercy of God that is offered to sinners in Jesus Christ? What does God do at that moment when the sinner comes savingly home to Christ and has no hope but Christ, but calls out to him, Oh, Lord Christ, save me. What happens then? Well, God blots the record out, wipes it clean. The word picture that Paul is drawing from is the ancient scribe. That's why I like the King James. That's why I like the New King James. They, they stick with the literal rendering. They stick with the word picture. It is of a scribe who wipes out what was written down and makes it clean. They wrote upon parchment with ink. You say, how can you wipe ink away? Well, in that day, the ink didn't have acid in it. In the day in which the apostle lived, and it was possible, you had to really give an effort, but you could wipe it out, and it was wiped clean. And that's what Paul says God does. The moment the sinner believes the gospel, he wipes it away. It's clean. The record against you is gone. That's what happens when people believe the gospel. Well, secondly... Paul speaks of deliverance from the powers. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He continues to develop the significance of the cross. The cross delivers the believer from the guilt of sin and gives us the great blessing of forgiveness. And that's a great deliverance, but the cross delivers us also from the powers. The cross is the place where Satan and the demons were fatally wounded and irreversibly defeated. Now Paul, in describing the defeat of the powers, is borrowing from a Roman military parade. That's the word picture he is using. It comes over into our vocabulary as the word triumph. The word triumph is, in its origin, a Roman military parade. 
where the conquering general has come back to Rome, having won the victory over the foe, and in that parade are displayed some of the captives of war, the defeated foes who are disarmed and who are subject to ridicule and uh, humiliation because they are utterly defeated and the people can see that these powers will never be the threat to them in the future that they have been in the past. And Paul is borrowing from that word picture of triumph of the Roman military parade and he is explaining that that is what the cross means for the Christian. That's what the cross did to the devil and to the powers. They have been disarmed. They have been utterly defeated and humiliated. The cross of Christ achieved not only a decisive victory over sin, but over Satan and the powers as well. In Christ, we share in his victory over the powers. These deliverances, by the way, are joined together. The forgiveness of sins means that the enemy of our souls, the accuser of the brethren, the devil, and devil means accuser, the accuser of, our, of the brethren has no case against us in heaven's court. Now, that doesn't mean that he gives up being the devil. That doesn't mean that he's not going to accuse you and me. He's going to do it until the day when God cast him into the lake of fire. Will he be tormented day and night forever? We can count on the fact that the devil will act like the devil until God cast him into his eternal home. But the point I am making is that the devil has no case in heaven. That's the great point of that vision of Revelation 12 where Michael and the archangel and the angels of God defeat the devil and his angels and the devil is cast out of heaven. The point is we are given a picture of what is the fruit of the cross. The devil has lost all legal footing in heaven. He has no access to heaven's court. Until Jesus died on the cross, Abraham and Moses and all those Old Testament saints, they were in heaven on God's credit card, but their sins hadn't been paid for, and the devil still had a case. But when Jesus died on the cross, the devil is thrown out of court. He has no case. He's a defeated foe. He's a humiliated foe, and he is a raging foe. And he rages against the woman, against the church, because he knows that his time is short. And one of the things that bothers him the most, that torments him the most, is that when God takes a sinner from his kingdom and translates that sinner into the kingdom of God's dear son, Satan can never have that sinner back. Nothing can snatch you from the hand of God and of his Christ. Nothing. Now, the false teachers, they've got angels on the brain. But the apostle has Jesus on the brain. He doesn't major in angels for good reason. The holy angels are not mediators to bring us to God. The fallen angels cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul majors in Christ, and he calls us to major in Christ Unlike not only the false teachers of that day, but of the false teachers in our own day who major in anything but Christ, 
Paul calls us to major in Christ. Now, the two questions I have in closing this morning. The first question is, are you in Christ? Are you converted? Have you been united to Christ through faith? There's no spiritual blessing apart from him. He alone is where the Holy Spirit directs all the lost sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. The gospel message will ever be until the second advent, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Are you a sinner today, standing by the portals of death, looking through those portals, as it were, with no hope of heaven on the other side, with the jaws of hell open wide to receive you? Then I say to you today, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That is the word of God. That's the promise of God to you. Now I have a second question, and that is a question that I need to ask for those of you who are in Christ. Do you understand what a wonderful thing this is? Do you sometimes feel like a second-class Christian? Have you come into this room today thinking of yourself in those terms? Oh, that God would help us all to realize the wonder of what it means to be in Christ. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. There is Because of our union with Christ, there is fellowship with him and his death, his burial, his resurrection. What a difference that has already made. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's big. That's big. And there is freedom through Christ. Your sins, though they be many, are forgiven for his sake. God has blotted them out. That's big. And you have victory over the powers. You have been delivered from Satan's kingdom and brought into the kingdom of God's dear son. And Satan can never have you back. That's big. And so next time when you write that email or that letter and you write those words in Christ and sign your name, do reflect on the wonder of those two words of that glorious preposition in before Christ. Did you know that that is by far the number one description in the New Testament of a Christian? It is used repeatedly again and again, more than any other description of the Christian. And there are many descriptions of the Christian, including the word Christian. But the word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament. In Christ, I can't even count how many times they are used. The Holy Spirit obviously is of the opinion That to be in Christ is the most marvelous thing that could have ever happened to you. And so when you sign that letter next time or you sign that email in Christ, do reflect upon the wonder of that. The glory of being in Christ. There is a lot of hallelujah praise material in those two words, in Christ. Thank God that all of God's people are in Christ, that therefore none of you are second-class Christians. None of you are God's poor stepchildren. You are all in Christ. Nothing more magnificent could have happened to you than that. And it happened to you because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the blessing of union with Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this passage that 
redirects our focus again to these glorious realities. We pray that these truths would, would, uh, would, would continue with us as we leave this place today, that these truths would continue with us in the coming week, that we would reflect upon what it means to be in Christ, and that our hearts would well up with gratitude and thanksgiving, and that we would live this week by your grace unto you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.